0: and everyone starts jumping up and down at the same time. Well, the building they put us in couldn't support the weight of all those 3,500 people jumping up and down. And the floor, the dance floor cracked and below us was a parking area. So this venue was a theater on top of, you know, underground parking.
1: This time on Tech's Pros and Rock and Roll, we talk with Greg Graffin, punk rock philosopher turned Ivy League lecturer and lead singer of the seminal punk band Bad Religion, about their unconventional rise as an indie band, time with a major label, and avoiding a nearly fatal concert tragedy that you have probably never heard about. My name is Chris Kosach. I created this program to highlight the written account of music, from memoirs to band bios and the occasional rock doc too. We're the book club that rocks, literally. This is Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll. Track 9 Bad Religion. If you've been listening to our show for a while, you probably know how this format goes. But this time, I'd like to do something a little bit different. Hey, it's Chris. After reading Bad Religion's music biography, Do What You Want, and then speaking with frontman Greg Graffin, I decided I wanted to make this episode of Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll a little bit different from all the rest. The book, which can be found on Hatchet, by the way, tells the story of the band's do-it-yourself approach, which took grit and tons of work over the years. It's a truly honest account of their journey. And so in that spirit, during this episode, I'm gonna let it roll exactly the way it was, with a little bit of music in there too, for good measure. It went a little something like this. your professor of is that biological evolution or evolutionary biology
0: you know the departments are called evolutionary biology I teach evolution at the uh, at, at Cornell everybody in those departments uh, you know they are evolutionists
1: very excellent. So I'm going to kind of keep that evolution theme throughout our interview a little bit, like, like, like I'm sure everybody else does. Um, but you, you talk about the evolution of punk a little bit in the, in the book, of course. We're talking about uh, Do What You Want, and it's by the entire band. Um, here's what I find fascinating. Punk has always had two schools of thought, right? There's like this angry, visceral, empty, chemical... Uh, a mindset. And then there is this thought-provoking, revolutionary, angry, <laughs> um, uh, uh, critical thinking avenue as well. And you guys come from the latter, of course. Um, but when you started, you were a bunch of teenage high school punks. So where did that come from? Was Woodland Hills kind of a hotbed of academics and world-class people?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, I can only speak, uh, I can't generalize except to say that um, the guys in the band, you know, were always interested in heady topics, um, even in our youth. Mine came from growing up in an academic household and uh, being exposed to, you know, all of the uh, youth youthful movements that the students on campus were, were, um, uh, creating and I, just being around university people. I mean, that's what you're expected to talk about is heady things, you know, and how's it going to affect uh, the culture and, you know, things that are going to have an impact and like education. Um, so that's what motivated me, and even you know, though we thought of ourselves as hardcore punk rockers, we always knew uh, when we wrote a song that we wanted to include some of that, uh you know, cultural grist that's going to be able to carry us through. Because we didn't, we weren't interested in capitalizing on the moment as much as uh, capitalizing on ideas and ideas that were universal in human suffering you know human the human experience so in that mm-hmm. sense, even from the very earliest album when we asked sarcastically how could hell be any worse you know with a picture of hollywood on it uh that was kind of a timeless question and we were kind of a bunch of mini philosophers interested in asking big questions, even though we couldn't answer them. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> what, can you answer them now? Probably not.
0: <laughs> the more I've learned, the more I know I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so in the beginning, the book talks a lot about how you kind of diy everything before that was even kind of an expression. You created Epitaph, uh, you to distribute your your music, which is... Can, Continues to be very independent. You created your own studio to record everything. Uh, but back in those days, thinking very independently, did you guys even try to get a big label from the beginning, or did you always kind of want to do it yourself from the get go? The book doesn't talk about
0: that. Well, don't forget, uh, the Ramones were on a major label, the Dead Boys were on a major label. Uh, you know, we, there were, you know, our, I think. Um, you know we even thought of slash records you know even though it was indie it, it was a pretty important label and we always wished that someone would pay attention to us and the truth is nobody did so you know being uh industrious and uh, especially you know brett coming from a uh a business household you know mm-hmm. his dad was a businessman uh he always he always had you know do it do it yourself diy on his mind and um you know i think that we were all behind that if we could make it work so but i think it is it's a it's a fantasy to say that we weren't interested of course we were interested man if you could get an album made and distributed it would be a big benefit if you had something important to say. And we felt we did have something important to say. So important that we were willing to do it ourselves.
1: <laughs> yeah. And boy, did you. You guys did a great job. Every time is killing it. years later it's been 40 40 years to talk about evolution does that freak you out a little bit to look back and think it's 40.
0: well of course i mean someday you too will get old and hopefully-
1: <laughs> there's a painting aging for me somewhere
0: and you look back and uh yeah if you've had a lived a, a good life um, it's had its ups and downs but the one thing everyone agrees on is, man, that was fast. forty years it it has gone fast, yes, And um, I look back, I'm in disbelief that um, that it's persisted for so long. You know, this thing we called bad religion forty years ago is still an active breathing thing. Um, yeah. So, uh, by many measures, it's more popular now. By I would say every measure, it's more popular now than ever. So, um. do you
1: think um, part part of your popularity was that move from epitaph to Atlantic, where you were part of the big machine, where they put you on uh, radio stations across the country and put you in front of a lot more people? Uh, of course, you backed off of that when the when the big train left the station and you were no longer with Danny. Goldberg or with Atlantic, did you maintain all of that audience?
0: Uh, it's hard to say I, I think um, when I look back on it, you know it's really uh, it's up to the historians to decide whether or not that move brought us to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. I was really close to the experience, obviously, so I didn't pay a lot of attention uh, to the you know, what would go down in history as the major cultural shifts at the time. I paid attention to, are we able to tour in more places? And so when we, we were on Atlantic in America, uh, North America, but we were on Sony for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Sony music expanded our distribution greatly. And we were meeting Sony reps in every country playing in places we'd never played before, like Brazil, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and parts of, uh, Scandinavia, we hadn't been before. Now Epitaph was growing at that time too. So it's very, again, you got to leave it to the business historians to look at what might've happened. But certainly we experienced a large global distribution at that time instantly. And, um, By the way, we were playing more cities in North America, too, with uh, Atlantic uh, distributing our records into every mall and every small town in America. I know our staff also had great success, because at that same time, the Offspring was uh, getting huge and Rancid was getting huge. So in many ways, I look back at it, and you'll have to ask Brett. He may have touched on it in the book a little bit about but, uh, you know, it, it did help Epitaph focus their energies, and, and indie has to focus their energy on the, the expanding demand for <laughs> bands like Rancid and The Offspring. And by not having bad religion there, it you know cleared up a lot of uh, warehouse space, for one thing, but also um, the manpower involved. And so I think it all worked out in the end. But uh, it's up to other people to debate what that period meant, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, You talk about touring a lot in Europe. And one thing I did not know, and I was in in alternative radio when 21st Century Digital Boy came out and was blowing up the alternative charts. Uh, I did not know the San Sebastian story. Can you please tell that story for any other fans of yours, including myself, who didn't know that unless they read this book?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the uh, we maybe we played there once before, but San Sebastian, Spain is uh, just this gorgeous area in the north on the Atlantic Ocean, a beautiful place to play. And we didn't even know there was a punk scene there. Well, it turned out there was... A huge, bad religion following there, and uh, they put us in a venue that probably could hold two thousand people safely.
1: Wow is that they big?
0: oversold it to at least thirty five hundred people, and we opened the show with uh, a, a song called Recipe for Hate and Recipe for Hate goes into the middle portion of the chorus when the uh, the song goes to halftime and everyone starts jumping up and down at the same time well the building they put us in couldn't support the weight of all those 3500 people jumping up and down and the floor the dance floor cracked and below us i did not know this below us was a parking area a garage So this venue was a theater on top of, you know, underground parking. All I know is I'm singing the chorus of the song and in front of me, a big hole opens up in the middle of the dance floor and bodies are falling into this hole, like it's a black hole or something. And they're falling on two cars that are two stories below them that are parked on this cement parking uh, structure. Uh, You know, obviously, it the most terrifying moment in my career. That hole kept getting bigger and bigger as more people fell into it and people were holding on, trying not to fall down into it. And the hole kept opening up and coming towards the stage. Miraculously, it stopped it before it reached the stage. And the people in the very front row were like clinging to the barricade, holding on. And I remember helping a bunch of them up onto the stage and uh, you know, saying, "Nice to meet you, but get the hell out of here." Um, they were escorted or just ran out the back door. But we went after we cleared all the people, uh, we realized this building is not safe. So we went to our backstage area and out to the the same level parking structure where our tour bus was. And we just stayed out there and watched for the next uh, six hours as ambulances kept coming back and forth to this venue. And so I don't recall, uh, I think one person might've died. I know there was a lot of injuries, but uh, to this day playing in San Sebastian, you know, the, you get fans, 30 years ago, we're at that show and, uh, or 25 years, whatever it's been. And they, uh, they always talk about that day. So it's kind of, a um, a badge of honor to say you were at that show.
1: Yeah. The visual from your POV must've been insane to just with dust coming up.
0: It was, yeah. I never forget it. It's just, uh, to this day, I get really worried when we play that song. I really do because inevitably this the slam dancing slows down and everyone starts to then everyone gets into a rhythm and it's putting a tremendous strain on the building
1: yeah
0: but most buildings can handle it there's still a lot of older buildings out there that have dance floors on them uh some of these dance floors like in the old um like eagles ballroom in milwaukee Mm -hmm. Uh, it was from the big band era. I know there's one in Detroit that's like that too.
1: Fillmore in San Francisco is like that too. Yeah.
0: And they have, uh, they've, those dance floors are built to move and to give way. But I don't know if they were meant to give way to 35. 35- <laughs> <000.
1: laughs> no, 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 no. Um, it would have been a different outcome. I think legally, if it happened in the United States too. Um, I tried I tried at one point during the reading of uh, the book, Do What You Want on Hatchet, to do one of those string analysis of all the people that came and went in your band and about 30 pages into doing this beautiful mind kind of uh, schedule. I just got so confused. I threw the book across the room and gave up. You've been the only constant through the whole thing. have you ever wanted to quit?
0: Not really. It's kind of like asking if you want to leave your family. I mean, you know, sometimes you think, well, yeah, I guess, you know, they all piss me off. But what what good is it going to do, ultimately? Mm-hmm. And everyone, eventually, everyone who has quit the band has regretted it. You know, that's one thing I can say. And uh, it doesn't mean that they aren't living good lives. They are, mm-hmm. and I'm happy for them. And I want them to move on to better things, but, but ultimately, you know, they could have done both stuck around and, you know, it's, so to me, it's like quitting is not really an option in my book. It's not some, I don't do that. I'm like, I'm like that. Uh, Jerry Maguire, right? I stick. <laughs> and I, I just did that for all, you know, I did that. From my wife who makes me watch chick flicks. So, you know, Jerry Maguire quote is pretty lame. I agree that.
1: that's, that's weird to hear from this like very well-known punk rocker who's like, save the world, save the world. And yeah, then an and example, Jerry Maguire
0: quote. That's an example of, of um, biting your tongue yes, and doing things that you don't really want to do
1: that's like, an example of marital watching,
0: evolution. Watching watching some movies that, you know, I really didn't want to watch and finding a nugget of something redeeming about the movie that I could identify with. Yes.
1: So, marital um, evolution, right? That
0: was one of them. <laughs> anyway, the point is, yeah, I've been around the whole time and um, I've seen them come and I've seen them go, but... Uh, but the truth is the core of the band has really always been there. Even though Jay left for a year or two, you know, he was he's rightfully the core of the band. Brett, you know, even though he left for a time, uh, he was still in my in my mind and estimation, he was he was a partner and a part of the band. So, you know, I don't make too much of the people who sort of left and came back and stuff, but you know, I do you know, I I do, uh, people leave for different reasons. And that's the one thing I've never tried to force someone or tried to meddle with their decisions because it's very personal and it has to do with their own constitution. So.
1: Right. Um, You say in the book that you won't like schedule new releases. The band is still together, but you don't have really a schedule. You put things out regularly but you don't anymore unless you have something to say damn man there's a lot to say right now are you working on some stuff
0: well we just, you know it's easy since the world got upended in the last uh eight months or six months whatever um it's it's easy to forget bad religion just put out an album in 2019 mm-hmm. and we did have a lot to say and we still do and a lot of that i think still is relevant right now you know when we write an album it's because uh we feel like we have something relevant to say that's not just gonna that's not a flash in the pan that goes away after um uh, the calendar year change. Mm-hmm. um the album was called the age of unreason so yeah i mean uh, every song that we put on there it was almost like a concept album you know living in a time as we are today when um All the things that bad religion has stood for all these years, you know, um, trying to create an enlightened society, trying to create a society that that has, uh, you know, freedom of expression and follows, hopefully, um, data driven, factual information. I mean, these are if you look through our songs, that's what we've been singing about all along. So, yeah. In, in
1: fact, you put out a reimagining of Faith Alone last week, I think, right? I loved how you slowed it down because now you really, really uh, need to listen to the lyrics. They're just they're in your face, the lyrics are. Uh, and all of your lyrics have been like that. But it has been, for the average listener, a little bit of an effort to listen to the lyrics sometimes through the melody. Uh, are you going to do that again, the, give it the Faith Alone treatment to other songs?
0: Uh, well... It's possible. We do have some stuff lined up, some releases that are coming out after Faith Alone, which just came out. And thank you for listening. Um, You know, you're right. It slowed down a little bit, but uh, the truth is, you know, a lot of the songs I write on piano and on acoustic guitar. And so they are, they lend themselves to different styles, different treatments and uh, I recorded this one on my piano and sent it off to Brett. So Brett took it and uh, did some arranging and sent it out to his friend who does uh, string arrangements. And, um, and then we sent it to Jamie to play drums on it. So I think that it, it turned out really, it's a cool way to collaborate uh, while we're still distant. But each of us has pretty good uh, studio Recording equipment at our own houses, so um, nice. You, some other ideas like that.
1: That's great. You actually answered one of my questions because you've always been early adopters. I was wondering if you were going to try to collaborate virtually, and you are. Will Will it be released like that, or is that going to serve as a demo?
0: Uh, no, I think if we collaborate like that, it'll be a finished, mastered product like Faith Alone 2020 that you did. Oh,
1: that's awesome. That's great. I can't believe- About this burning question. Everybody in the punk rock world knows that you've gone into academia. Does your CV from Cornell say anything about bad religion? Do your students take classes from you because you are Greg Graffin from bad religion? I'm curious about that.
0: Well, I'm curious about that too because I never <laughs> asked them. And, oh, okay. uh, I don't bring it up. They bring it up in office hours, you know, and they ask me about it and they think it's kind of cool. But ultimately, which I'm really happy about, you know, whether you're a bad religion fan or not, uh evolution is one of the most important subjects that you can take. And uh they're taking it because they believe that. And uh, you know, they're not um by and large, they're not there because of my outside interests. They're there because I've gotten a reputation of uh, being an easy professor. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that's not true. I mean, I am easy, I think, because I like to see effort, and I like to, to uh, see uh, good, you know, I teach people to think critically, and that's something that I can see reflected in their answers and uh, their interest in the subject. Mm-hmm. So if I see that, I, I'm, I tend to give a lot of uh, high marks for effort. That's important to me. Um, but also I just think that, you know, as a, a graduate from any four-year institution, um, any, any college or university, evolution is one of the subjects that you really should know. And regardless of your, your beliefs, it's one of the factual subjects that you really should know, and because of that, I get a really interesting crop of students from across the academic spectrum. It's not just biologists, and so you know because of that, yeah, maybe some of them are are interested in in taking it from me, but um, that's not at all discussed in the in the uh, syllabus <laughs>
1: okay. Um... I, I'm curious about uh, where the state of the world is right now from your perspective. Uh, you discuss literature and history and all these other things in Do What You Want. I'm curious to know, where do you see us going? If you look at like a dynasty, you look at uh, all these civilizations, there was Greece and there was Rome, then there was England, uh, China's up and coming. Do you think America's over or are we, are we on the precipice of enlightenment or are we kind of on a downward spiral?
0: Well... I think if you want to talk about enlightenment, the quest began not in America. So it's really a human pursuit, it's a human endeavor. And I don't get very nationalistic when I speak academically. Um, Most college campuses are indeed a melting pot of different nations from all over the world. And I think it's one of the most hopeful signs that we are getting, and we have the opportunity to get closer and closer to the Enlightenment objective uh, of, you know, having an enlightened global community. So, in that respect, America is not over, but, you know, you have to put aside your nationalistic tendencies if you really believe in a better world, because... That's what the universities are doing. They're not indoctrinating, they're not supposed to be indoctrinating people into nationalism. They're supposed to be providing a way for humanity to think better and to think more critically and to uh, face challenges uh, objectively and to face the truth, even though it might be ugly face the truth um, of. What it means to have a global society, so yeah I, I'm uh, always optimistic about that and um, you know whether or not and, and Amer- oh by the way I'll just say this if you want to be uh, if you want to be proud of America then be proud of the fact that we still have the best at least as of today uh, we have a the best university system in the world. Um, Let's hope that doesn't go south because if that goes south, then not only is America doomed, but this idea of a global enlightened community is also doomed.
1: That, I, you can't top that. That's perfect. I was curious, you, you know, Epitaph, it was do-it-yourself and the studio, you did it yourself, but then you ended up going with Hatchet, uh, uh, one of the biggest publishers in the world. I am just kind of curious. Did you guys even think about self-publishing or doing like Epitaph
0: <laughs> literature? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Brett, you know, was always very optimistic about self-publishing and and I'm not opposed to it, but you do have, you know, Brett's also the best businessman. So, and the other guys in the band are very business oriented as well. And I think, you know, my my opinion wasn't that strong on the matter. But they thought that, you know, there's, a, there's an industry that sells books out there. They're set up for it. Mm-hmm. and um, We felt like that if we did it ourselves, it would be like another product that we're putting out. We could be successful. But we really want this book to sort of cross over so that the general public, who may not know what Epitaph is, will learn what Epitaph is. so.
1: My guest has been Greg Graffin, frontman for the band Bad Religion. Greg, along with his bandmates, have written a compelling book on the hard work and smart business that powered their success. Do what you want can be found on Hatchet Books, and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Here's this week's liner notes. Text prose and rock and roll was created, written, and produced by yours truly in association with GoTo Productions, Charlene Goto producer. Thank you to Greg Graffin for being my guest and to the entire band for their support. Thanks also to Brett Gurowitz and Epitaph Records for all of the music used on this episode. And thank you to Michael Gio and everyone at Hatchet Book Group. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Instagram to see what's coming up on future tracks of this show and drop us a line while you're there. You can find us online at textprosrockandroll.com and while you're there, be sure to check out the soundtrack associated with this episode with all music by Bad Religion. For text, prose, and rock and roll, I'm Chris Kosach, rock on.